Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group, uh, talking to you today from Chicago. I'm joined by my co-hosts, uh, Jim Marty out in Colorado and Rob Hunt in California. Jim, how are you doing today? Very good. You're enjoying our late spring, early summer weather out here. I'm looking forward to some shows that we're going to talk about today. Absolutely. A lot of good shows to talk about. Rob, how about you? What's new down in San Diego? All's good in San Diego. Lots and lots of work doing the cannabis industry this week. So uh, crazy amounts of M&A that's happening these days. Yeah. Anything that you can share with us? Uh, not yet, uh, but you'll see you'll see announcements coming out soon with a with a handful of these. But uh, but but all good, and you know California's going through its probably biggest wave of M and A that we've ever seen in Cal- in, in cannabis. Now the regs are kind of well enough written that people are actually saying we'd like to have exposure to that state rather than just being in the limited license states. Very nice, very nice. And Jim, what about you? Have you been seeing an uptick of uh, deals and everything? Yes, well, um, kind of exciting to see the cost of capital coming down. Uh, you know, we've seen um, 18% interest tumble down into the single digits. So the cost of capital is definitely coming down. We're seeing banks on the East Coast, but also in other parts of the country, uh, wanting to get into the cannabis industry and offering uh, first deeds of trust on, on grow facilities in the single digits, which is definitely news. Very exciting. Okay, well, that's good. I, I think only two of the larger publicly traded companies, though, if you're a private, you're still not seeing um, single-digit debt being offered. You know, it's still still 12 to 15 percent for the most part. But yeah, the, the larger the larger groups are definitely seeing a much lower cost of capital. Yes, and uh, although this, uh, the private equity um, private placements are are doing well too, and with again uh, somewhat lower cost of capital, but. Uh, yeah, I looked at a deal this week, and it was 3.5% a month for an equipment lease. And I d- did the math for my client. I said, you know, that's 42% interest a year. <laughs> yeah. That's heavy, man. But let's just say this, because while things are going on, and, and as we've talked about regularly as well, uh, it's sweeping the nation and, and, and appears to be uh, partisan proof. I did see that um, in both Kansas and South Carolina, they had medical um, initiatives that quote unquote, ran out of time. Uh, you know, they, they weren't able to get them approved in enough time. So the, the propositions have died. Uh, they, they say they're going to try and go back and get them approved again. Uh, you know, given some of the states that we've seen come online in the South and including other places too, like South Dakota and uh, states that have just very been traditionally read, uh, it's a little surprising. Um, you know, in Kansas, you would think maybe they'd want to jump on board and take advantage of a little bit of what's going on compared to their neighbor in Colorado. And Instead of trying always to sue them in the Supreme Court to get them to stop selling over there, uh, but uh, they haven't quite given in yet. And in Texas, I see where they have a a reform bill that they're trying to push through that's still alive. So uh, we still have ballot initiatives going on. That's great to see. Um, Here in Illinois, another article came out that promises, promises that before the end of this month, which doesn't give them a lot of time, we are all going to know who's getting these licenses that we've been waiting now well over a year to find out about. So uh, it could be big news here shortly, maybe as uh, soon as our show next week. Uh, If not, hopefully by the week after that. And uh, once that happens and the industry can really start to take off here, uh, we are anticipating great things. But until then, we're all just sitting our behinds waiting for the uh, state legislature to get off of its and and make something happen. Um, What do you hear at the federal level? Is the uh, Safe Banking Act moving forward? I have not heard anything about that. I have heard a little bit of frustration expressed towards the Biden administration's 
seeming, I don't want to say indifference, but uh, they don't seem to view this with the same amount of uh, importance, let's say, that uh, others do. And I think for some people that's been a little bit frustrating. But, you know, I think as we've talked before, it's probably a difficult thing at this time uh, to push through if you're, if, you know, if everybody's set up to play partisan politics and, you know, if you propose it, we're not going to vote for it and vice versa. Uh, it, it may not be something that they're willing to go to bat on right now to to try to push through uh, a closely divided Senate. But we'll see. Um, you know, it remains out there. And of course, Jim, as you know, you're fond of saying, uh, you know, no sense in, you know, disturbing a good thing that's working out so well for everybody that's that's otherwise legitimately in the industry. Um, but we will keep our eye on that over the next uh, couple of months here and see if uh, if they can get any traction on a federal level. That would That's be- right. The scariest thing is for a small businessman is when the federal government knocks on your door and says, we're here to help. <laughs> Absolutely. Larry, um, do you want to get to our guest? We've got a great guest today. I do want to get to our guest. Thank you. We're, we're sitting here talking about states that have come online, that are coming online. And we've spent a little bit of time uh, uh, talking amongst ourselves and with some of our prior guests about the fact uh, that after a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of struggle, the wonderful state of New York is coming online with uh, actual adult use. They'll be able to sell real marijuana, not just the little vape pens that they were selling for all of this time. And uh, I thought that a great guest for our show today would be an old deadhead buddy of mine, a New York attorney named Larry Rader. Larry knows the New York scene both on the marijuana side and the... uh, Grateful Dead and related music side, probably about as well as anybody you'll find out that way. Larry, thank you so much for taking the time and joining us on the show. It's a pleasure to have you here. It's a pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, give us a little bit of background on on yourself. You're, you're from the New York area. Where'd you start out? And you know, where were you when you first kind of discovered that there was cannabis in the Grateful Dead? Well, uh, I was born near Nassau, but lived most of my adult life near the Garden. And so it was always close to shows. Um, so, yeah, I'm a suburban kid. I grew up out there as music head. The Dead was huge on Long Island. It just always was. And um, I, I think this latest Dave's Picks, right, is a Nassau show, which I was I was 12, but my sister was there, so I'm proud of her. Um, <laughs> but um, so I, I think that uh, like that actually ties into where I came onto it. My sister got into The Dead. She was three years older than me, is, and went to those shows and was hanging out with, you know, 15 or 14 or 16 year old hippies um, of the early seventies or mid seventies. And um, I don't know exactly when after that, but I know sometime around when Europe 72 came out, that was kind of my moment. Uh, Needle drop, Cumberland blues done. Um, And, and, and honestly, that, that that remains to this day. Um, So, and probably my favorite song for them to play whenever any of their various uh, configurations come out and take a shot at it. I wish the Deadhead knows when their first show was. What was yours? Uh, Giant Stadium 78. Um, although uh, I was outside but didn't get into some of those Palladium or Capitol theaters in the spring of 77. And then I was... Um, just couldn't pull it off for English Town, but it was in a way that's the first show because it was on the radio on WNEW, and we all did Grateful Dead show things with the radio on in my friend Art Robin's backyard. Shout out Art Robin, Rochester, New York. Um, so it was, it was kind of like being a show because it was, especially as we learned later, as all of us having been to shows, you know, you didn't know what the next song was going to be, and you were just sort of experiencing it as they were doing it. And I, you're probably all familiar with the show, but they stopped for like 10 minutes between every song. They just couldn't get shit together, and, and it was you 
500,000 people and uh, a crazy racetrack might have something to do with it. So it really did feel like a show. And I remember that. I was like, okay, next time I'm going. And I don't know what happened in the spring of that year, but uh, in the summer, uh, just before Egypt, they played Giant Stadium. And that was the one. Wow. So, so let me ask you this. What was your musical tastes up to that point? Um, and since that point, I'm not a traditional deadhead. Uh, uh, we were uh, chatting, Larry, you and I recently about all the other things going on and shows and bands. Um, I was always, when I got into the dead in 74, 75 or something like that, uh, punk rock came along soon after that. And that's that's kind of been my space forever. Um, and also just music, crazy music, life music. Music is life. Music is the best. Zappa. Um, so, um, you know, I was a radio DJ and uh, at a new wave and punk show uh, in college. So um, it was really all of it. The Dead, uh, I don't know, back then I was probably listening to dopey shit like Frampton Comes Alive. Uh, the Dead really changed our worlds, didn't it? No, no matter what we were listening to. So like I had, I was 14 or so, so I knew about Hendrix and Zeppelin and Chip. And, um, I think that throughout the rest of high school, though, The Dead and Floyd probably took over. And also were the best shows I saw then and to this day. The Animals Tour of Floyd and um, some of those dead shows in 78 and 79, which were, you know, kind of up and down in retrospect, but in the moment they were really, really good. Boy, Franklin Comes Alive brings back some memories. That was backseat of the car makeout music. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Cannabis on the Train, Go to the Garden music. Uh, <laughs> even better, right? And Sure. So let's talk about that now, because now New York, the. Do you believe the New York City police when they tell you you're going to be able to smoke marijuana in public? May I get a tad political? Please. They never bothered me anyway, man. But uh, I don't think it's going to be that great for black people in New York because it's an excuse to hassle people. You want to say to any cop, uh, no, this is legal now as a black guy. Um, you know, it's not the greatest thing in the world. So I think that the idea of harassing in order to find out what might be going on under the surface will be enhanced. Having said that, Everything I hear is that it is just so prevalent. I haven't been in the city much because of the pandemic. I live about an hour north of the city. My office is there, but I haven't been there much. Everything I hear is that you just walk down the street and it's like pre-Bloomberg when you could smoke everywhere. So everybody was smoking. You can still smoke cigarettes on the street, but kind of the no smoking thing took over. So you don't even see as much of that. And now apparently just everyone's walking down the street with a device or a joint and uh and it smells like it. And it looks like it. So maybe that's a honeymoon. I, I will tell you, New York City cops have never given a shit about pot. They really haven't. Going back to when I was a kid, they just had better things to do. If you're white. How is it doing? Is it coming back? Are the bars and restaurants getting open? Yeah. Um, I actually, a large part of my practice is um, bars and restaurants and hospitality and concert business. So I've been attached to all that as it comes back. Right now, for the past week, week and a half, since that day they called the pandemic over on the federal level and they said, we're done, go out. Um, and then Cuomo followed that a couple of days later and did the same thing. One bar owner friend of mine from the East Village said it's like Times Square on Avenue A on New Year's Eve. It's it's that blown out there, shoulder to shoulder people. Um, the bars are a little less crowded than they'd like, but a bunch of people told me they're doing um, 2019 numbers. So that's just great. I mean, the way it's, it's it being this crowded, you, they, could, they should be doing like, uh, you know, December numbers are the best month of the year numbers and not quite there, but at least they're hitting what they lost completely. And just to put that in a little context, I, I have a lawsuit going with a bar and um, 
it's a forensic accounting case. So I could probably hire all of you here to take a little piece of that as experts. But anyway, um, we just were doing something in discovery on uh, revenues. This is a very popular sports bar near the garden. $4 million in 2019, um, $800,000 from uh, March to March 2020-21. So you're really talking about a 70 80% drop-off. Um, and the bars in the social neighborhoods are doing real well. The restaurants and bars in Midtown are still dying because offices aren't coming back. And they rely on happy hour lunches and that kind of thing. But uh, where, where there's nightlife, the bars are good. And what are you seeing about that? Or, or, or is there live music happening in the city again or, or, or acts being booked? Um, some small things. Acts are being booked. Yeah. Every day is another thing. You must see it also. Just every day there's more stuff being announced in, um, you know, Colorado. What did they? What is Red Rocks has eighty shows on the schedule? I mean, the, the large, the most they've ever had, or something. Yes, and they're expanding capacity too. In fact, um, our Avalanche hockey team uh, just announced uh, expanded capacity for the next round of the playoffs at the um, what I used to call the Pepsi Center. I guess it's called the Ball Center now. So they're bringing people back. I like that. Good. Well, my Knicks are on tonight from the Garden, and I think that's going up every game. I know it was bigger for the first game the other night than where the season had ended. So for sure, capacities are getting real big, including indoor. Um, and there's all kinds of shows coming up, some things that got rescheduled but sort of were without dates are now getting dates. Uh, smaller clubs had started to play. Uh, you know, you could put – 50 people in a big place. That had started to happen anyway. But now you're seeing big stuff. I bought tickets today for St. Vincent. That's a cool tour. And it went up and it, and it blew out, which is nice news. Um, but a buddy of mine's client is a guy named Jeremy Zucker, who's kind of blown up in um, emo pop. I don't know. He's, he's depressed, but the music sounds good. They went up at Red Rocks today and blew out in a minute, um, like the, a label show. So uh, it seems like everything is selling. Although Dead & Company has not done very well here. The uh, city field is is uh, really not that sold. Yeah, I haven't seen. I haven't checked about Wrigley Field yet. I just haven't looked. But that's interesting. Our shows in um, Denver sold out immediately. Yeah, I thought the whole tour would blow out instantly. Um, maybe not some of the lawns at the sheds, but uh, I'm surprised. City Field has uh, pretty much all price levels and um, and a lot of empty seats in the top deck. It'll probably do okay. They've had a weird thing with City Field. They they had a show there once that was a complete stiff. They were giving away tickets that day just to not make it look bad. And and uh, for some reason, it just hasn't. Some of the shows they have done well, some not. Were you there for the show when they let John play Wolf? I was not at the Wolf show. I was at the Donna show though, which was really cool. That that just because that, I'm old enough to have seen Donna, so that I guess we all are, or some of us, Robert. Just to talk about New York City a little more, uh, you mentioned Midtown. You know, I, I think it's a permanent thing with people working from home. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with all those high-rise buildings? You have city block after city block. Uh, my son said, "Well, you know, Dad, they'll probably turn them into residential apartments." There will certainly be some of that. Um, part of the city is is. Traditionally, pretty bad for that, but that didn't stop it before. We've seen that, you know, what they call FIDI, the financial district, that never seemed to be good for living, and that just made a big switch in the 90s and early aughts. So, yeah, I think there will be some of that. The problem with the newer buildings, you know, the square glass buildings, they weren't built in a way that they make great lofts like all the old office buildings were. So they're just going to be, you know, behemoth-sized buildings that, you know, you can only make sort of square box apartments. 
But yeah, I think there'll be some of that. I think rents will go down and a lot of bigger businesses will certainly use their offices. They'll just pay less for them and they won't have as many people there. Um, but it's not coming back all the way. I don't know anybody who thinks it's coming back all the way. I just can't see it. People like, you know, wait five or 10 years and see how it all plays out. There's just too much office space. And every bit of it was was, was rented before this all started. And that was so crazy. New York was just doing great on real estate. Couldn't kill it. What about Chicago, Larry? What's uh, what is the offices like there? It's a lot of the same. You know, a lot of the downtown is empty, and not empty, empty, but a lot of the buildings are have have uh, rather substantial vacancies in them. And I think it's going to be a big change. You know, the the big talk here is whether or not the circuit court is going to allow attorneys now to just permanently appear by Zoom if that's what they want to do, instead of having to come down to court. I mean, if they say that, you know, for a guy like me who practices up in the suburbs, that's a game changer. So. Uh, you know, we'll see where they go with all of it. It's uh, it'll be pretty interesting all the way around. But uh, definitely exciting to get back to live shows, and definitely exciting to get to see these guys play. I see uh, Jim. I don't know if you saw that um, uh, Trey just announced that after his Saratoga Springs uh, uh, solo shows, he's going to come back to the Beacon to do a few shows. This time in front of a full house instead of uh, what he was doing last fall. Although that was cool because he just brought in all the the people who normally work at the building and paid them to be there and sit in the audience and listen to him. So that was, that was genius. That, that was, I mean, I'm, I'm not so you know down with the music is, is good, but the way they set up that room, which apparently was entirely his idea, you know, to play towards the house and, and put the cameras in the back. That, that was, that was spectacular. Yeah, Enjoy. it really was. It really was a lot of fun. Yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. I've been to the beacon peeking at the beacon, right? Beautiful old theater. Yep. It is. I saw a couple of Allman Brothers show there with our good friend Alex Wellens, especially on their last time through. Unfortunately, I wasn't there the night that Eric Clapton walked out to play with them, but uh, certainly saw many good moments of music there and uh, have always enjoyed that theater quite a bit. I got a kind of this story for that night. Yeah, <laughs> go. Just just a little pot smoking story. So uh, my nephew, who's now just graduated college, is a musician. He went to music uh, school. He's, he's He can compose and write, and he's sort of a burgeoning rock star, but also uh, has all these other music skills and always did. So um, when were those shows? Uh, he, he couldn't have been more than 11 or 12, maybe even less. But we were always pumping music into him. And, and the Clapton shows come up. My brother-in-law goes, you know, I had tickets. And he says, well, I'm going to try to go down there and get a couple of seats at the last minute. And he does. And they were on the like second or third row, all the way up to the side, but still right in there. So we kind of shoved the kid to the rail where a couple of um, like almost famous groupie chicks came over to my brother-in-law goes, don't worry, we got him. So 10 feet in front of us is the back of the head of this little kid, long hair, literally in front of Clapton with guess Clapton was, uh, was house rides. I think it was my Clapton, Warren, Derek, but whatever it went, literally like between the three of them, like looking up like, like at those three guys and we're three rows behind sight. Cause we get high the whole show because the little kid wasn't there. So that's the kind of his end of that story. No, it was a win-win. That, but that's what happens with all of our kids. And we talk about this a lot as our kids get older and they want to start going to shows with us. Somewhere along the way, you have to have the conversation. For me, the minute was when I took my oldest, we went, it wasn't, uh, it was just, what were they calling themselves? The dead for a while. And we saw them at the old Rosemont Horizon, the site of uh, many a, a good dead show back in the day. And we walked in and as always, they have a huge police presence everywhere. And we sat down and the lights went off and everybody in the place lit up. And he turned to me, he goes, I don't understand how this is happening. There's all these police officers. Well, this is the Grateful Dead. And, you know, when you come into Seaside, they keep track of what goes on out there, but not one in here. But he learned his lesson too well. 
because then a couple of years later, further played at the uh, Auditorium Theater in Chicago, which is a really, really nice old place where the dead used to play way back in the day. But, you know, with carpeting and, and suede seats, I mean, not the kind of place you're going to want a bunch of deadheads sitting around smoking. And he went with his buddy and I went with my wife and on the way down there, I'm like, dude, I know what we saw last time. This is not last time. This is Chicago. This is downtown. They have very strict no smoking. Don't do it. Lights go off. Everybody in the place lights up, including him, 10 feet in front of us, you know. And his mother was like, he shouldn't be smoking. I'm like, you get everybody else to smoke, stop. I'll get him to stop. And, you know, and off we went. And another generation is born, right? So it's just, you know, that's the way it is. Well, it's funny. It it ties into New York and legalization recently. I have younger kids for an old man like myself. So my older kid is 14. And um, they – at so that transition, which I've gone through with all my friends and family because their kids are, you know, normal age for people our age. Um, the younger guys, he's all hip to cannabis, um, says he's not going to smoke it for a while. You know, so everybody I know with kids our age, we have told our kids since they were 12, yes, we smoked. Um, probably not full disclosure, but certainly, um, sure, sure we did. And, um, and I think the narrative for people with younger kids who are, Growing into that age as the laws are changing, especially here, um, because they talked about the law here for so long, is that it's going to be legal when you're old enough to smoke it. And it, you're going to look at it like alcohol, I hope. In my view, kid, I'm sort of a hippie guy, so I, I like potheads a lot better than drugs. But, you know, make your own call. But that's what it's going to be. You know, be careful with the hard stuff and be have fun with the fun stuff. And I don't think people had that conversation with their 12 and 13 year olds seven or eight years ago, 10 years no, ago. My kid was, no, my kid, I didn't have that conversation with even with my oldest until he was probably 17 or 18, you know, and he'd been in high school. And, and with legal marijuana, a lot of the young people don't smoke marijuana at all. Well, that's, that's one of the most amazing statistics because in Illinois, it's an opt-out state. So any community can opt out. They don't have to allow adult-use dispensaries. And I've got clients who want to go into certain communities, and they ask me to go with them to the meetings where the city planners all meet to make these decisions. And one of the statistics I throw out all the time that always gets rejected right out of hand by them is that in every state that's had adult use, teenage smoking has gone down. And nobody believes it, but it's true. And I think, you know, partly for that reason, you know, if your old man and your mom are sitting around getting high all the time, you're going to look for something different to do. Otherwise, you're not rebelling. Well, not just that, but uh, the old uh, corner pot dealers didn't ask for ID. Right. That's true. That's true, too. So, Rob, look at all this you have to look forward to. Now, how, how old is your oldest? She's, uh, she's six years old, um, and I'm, I'm not worried about it at all. I'm actually looking forward to raising my children in a world where the cannabis is a regular part of their life, and they never knew it to be anything but legal. So the fact that I can raise them in a time where you know they, they treat it the same as alcohol because they've never known anything different to me is an absolute joy that that's the world they, they get raised in. Um, you know, if you think about... If you think about, you know, the, the, the corner weed dealer, I mean, I haven't thought about one of those in years because all of my people that I bought weed from weren't corner weed dealers. They're guys just like me that were selling bags, you know, to make sure that their bag was free when they bought an ounce or when they were buying a pound and then their QP was free, you know, whatever the, the quantity was, they were just making sure they were getting, you know, cheaper free weed in the process. So, you know, I think the whole myth of, of you know, buying weed on the corner has largely gone away years ago, especially with the advent of the cell phone. I don't think there's been a corner weed dealer since, you know, you could get someone to come to your door. So it's, uh, you know, the, the safety issue that used to exist or the concern. I mean, these are all antiquated notions of, you know, what life used to be like before you had the, uh, the ability to experience a much more efficient, illicit market system. Mm -hmm. So uh, speaking of kids, I can tell a story about 
taking uh, our older son Matt to Red Rocks one of the first times, and I forget who the band was at the time, but it was I think it was a maybe it was further. Or it could have been Phil and friends. We went up and spent the afternoon. We sat on the stairs. Matt was probably twelve or thirteen, and uh, got really got in there early. You know, it's a uh, open seating, so if you get there when they open the gates, you can be in the first row if you want to be. I'm probably in the fifth or sixth row center. Right in the middle of one of the jams, Matt turns and goes, Dad, if you still have that extra for tomorrow, I want it. We've been to many, many shows together since then. That's the way that it goes down. They That's never know until they get there. I, I like raising my kids knowing that, uh, you know, they say, Dad, I'm so, here, so sick of hearing the words cannabis, 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 while they're telling me, you know, is this the verse in Franklin's Tower that talks about Franklin's Tower? So, you know, that's, that's how kids should be raised these days. And I'm, I'm pretty fired up that my, that, that, you know, that's, that's what's happening here that my kids know probably 15 fish tunes, uh, you know, by heart and can certainly sing along with a handful of other ones, uh, as, as well as Grateful Dead songs. So, you know, the, the fact that we get to do this and at the same time, you know, they can see all the different, uh, edibles products and vape products I've got sitting around the house. So long as I, you know, make sure they understand that those aren't things that they should be, you know, using any more than alcohol is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a much more sensible way to live. I, you know, not only do I agree, but unfortunately, you know, well, now God, almost 20 years ago when my oldest was, you know, just going through that stage, you know, I, I really couldn't quite be that open with him yet. So my greatest joy was that I raised all three of my boys in the shadow of Wrigley Field as diehard Cardinal fans. So you, you kind of have to take your victories where you can get them. Uh, they all, they all stumbled into this other stuff by themselves anyway, which I kind of figured they would. And, uh, you know, from, from mom's perspective is always better maybe that they got themselves there instead of dad leading them directly well, down the path. In so those I think days, it all worked yeah. out here too. But you know what Rob's saying, and I'm in the middle of all that. So, um, we're not going to better or worse. We're just not going to do that. Once Rob's kids are older, then there's no question. It's going to be talked about either that or don't ever drink a beer in front of your kids. So this is, this is the world your kids right. are going to grow up in. I'm right in the middle of that. So, so, you know, they're 14 and, really into pop culture and uh, just everything that goes with it and really into cannabis law. So I don't know whether to pull out all these bongs that aren't going to look like I bought them since it went legal a week ago, you know? So <laughs> that's a bit of a thing. Uh, but we haven't quite gotten there, but I, I, it's coming. We have gone to shows and we will keep going to shows. I, I think that's the whole thing that like is so strange to me that I keep going to like, you know, um, uh, planning board meetings or, or, you know, city planning meetings. And I keep hearing the same refrain over and over again, which is, you know, like, well, well what about the children? How are you going to keep this away from the children? And my answer is like, look, I've got a, a wine fridge, a beer fridge, and a liquor cabinet in my house. And I don't expect that my kids are going to drink my booze. So why in the world should I expect that they're going to be, like, sneaking this around? The only reason that, like, kids get excited about things is, like, if it's forbidden fruit, you know, then it's like, okay, we've got to try that. Look, at a certain point in time, I know my kids are going to try smoking weed. And I know at a certain point in time before they're 21, they're going to, you know, try drinking alcohol. The question is, how do you educate them about it, and how do you, you know, prepare them for for what it is they should be doing and what they should expect to to experience? And, and I think that's true of you know other substances as well. I just think that you know, like hiding behind the veil of secrecy and, and, and vilifying something is not the right way to raise children. I don't care what you know the legality is; it should always be having an open discussion and, and being a good parent in, in those situations. And look, I think legality and this whole question of, you know, kids being raised where they're watching this change in front of them is actually really, really positive to drive the conversation as they think about how they're going to you know, address it when they become parents. Well, and here's the thing. When we go to these communities to talk about them, one of the things I ultimately wind up relying on and falling back on with them is, look, if you prohibit it in your 
community, that's great. But don't think it's not going to be there, right? The kids will just go one community over and buy it and bring it back. If you if you give it the, the, the okay sign here, then you get to be out in front and help frame the message for the kids. And you get to help, you know, educate them and teach them instead of worrying what they're picking up when they go talk to their buddy who lives one town over to pick up the marijuana for them that way. But, uh, you know, a lot of people, I say that we live in a society where if you ask anybody about reefer madness, they'll laugh at it and say, oh, ha, ha. But that really is the way they view marijuana. They just won't admit it. I'm sorry, Rob. How do those meetings go, Larry? Are, are there communities that came out against it coming around? Because I'm watching that here now that it just got legal here. And um, our town went crazy about a vape store a few years ago. I live in a very crunchy, lefty, Westchester, very hippie, known hippie town. Literally, the mountain in our town is where the movie Reds took place in real life, where the commies went to run away from the New York City, you know, fascists trying to kill him. Red Hill is cuts in the middle of Croton Hudson. It's very, very crunchy here. And yet the people who are anti the store, the vape store, and now it's, it's already happening with uh, with the prospect of legal marijuana stores is um, a very loud and winning small minority. And I'm wondering how that goes over there because the mayor came out in favor of it. Now we're a year or more away, probably more than a year. Right. And yet every town's talking about it. And a lot of them are talking about it, the very issue you said, you know, keep your kids near home. And it's a community store. You get to know the people who are in a community store. Um, and the mayor is all over that mayor. God. Well, one one argument to be wary of and, and watch out for, because I don't think it's statistically valid, but for better or worse, teenage suicide is up across the nation. And the anti-marijuana people are trying to link that to legal marijuana, which I don't think there's any statistical evidence for that. But just be aware that you're going to hear that argument. I'd be inclined to do it the other way and say kids who can't get access to marijuana don't have a way to mellow out and they, they make bad decisions. Correlation does not equal causation. Yeah, it's just like, like smart approaches to marijuana. Those guys can make whatever convoluted um, statement they want to make on all sorts of things. Look, every, anytime I see a stat like that, I always say, who's putting that stat forward? And nine times right. out of ten, it's the rehabilitation industry. Right. And, and, and Larry, the short answer to your question is that some of these communities, it doesn't matter what you say to them. They just it's it's either too much of a political liability for any of the uh, elected officials to give it the green light or people aren't willing to change. They don't understand. But what we have seen now because there were all these articles about how in the first year, Illinois pulled in over a billion dollars of sales. So now a couple of towns that actually had medical in them but wouldn't allow adult use, screwing the medical owners because they couldn't convert to adult use under the law. Now they're coming back and saying, well, geez, look at all this money that's out there that's being split up. And, you know, we don't have a bunch of stoned out zombies wandering down Michigan Avenue breaking windows, so maybe this is okay. And I think sometimes there's part of that they just have to see that we'll let them try it over there. And if their town is still around in the morning, then we can talk about it over here kind of thing. And every other retailer wins when there's a very popular store in their strip mall, you know, and, and everybody's everybody in commerce is going to be in favor of this, even if they don't say it out loud. They can't not be. I, I bought I bought weed in Massachusetts when I was up there uh, two summers ago. Now, the only time I've set foot in a dispensary, you guys, you guys, with all your legal shit, but the only time I, have, I ever bought weed legally. Um, but the stores next door were killing it. Man. There was a line in the parking lot and, and um, everybody was happy. It was just win-win for all. Doesn't mean they want you there, though, Larry. I mean, unfortunately, I ran a hydroponics store up in Portland, Maine, 
And we had Catholic Charities as our upstairs neighbor, and they did everything they could to force us out and make sure the landlord didn't renew our lease because they knew the people coming in were, were buying product to, to grow cannabis. And, you know, like they would fight me on like the parking lot restrictions. They'd fight me on like what kind of like a use we had of the, uh, the dumpster out back. It was every single incremental thing they could do to try and make our lives miserable because they didn't agree or appreciate what the message was that we were sending as a, you know, in opposition to theirs. Whereas, like, I could care less there upstairs for me. I was perfectly happy to have guys who were doing nice things to the community as my neighbor. Um, so, you know, don't, don't underestimate that there are still people that are, you know, vehemently against, even if it's uh, driving business to, to their doorstep. Yeah, and that's the loud minority all over again. You know, Catholic Church is probably a bit of an outlier compared to regular retailers just hoping to get people in to, you know, buy a cup of coffee. But they're going to make the most noise and they're going to have the power with the polls. I mean, this is a great example that it's the Catholic Church, but just in general, um, you know, the, the loudest voices are not going to come from the majority. And, and I guess these villages will all decide for themselves. We have uh, Ossining and Peekskill on either side of us. Peekskill is a very, very cool, thriving town, but that, that's traditionally been, uh, you know, not terribly white. And Ossining is a little bit of everything, uh, but it's got the biggest prison in the last time last time new york executed somebody was right there next door so um you know they're gonna get all this business and the croton people who are in the business or who like croton commerce are gonna come around but again that's the problem we'll we'll have 75 percent in favor of anything that's uh usually lists to the left but that doesn't necessarily mean anything because uh the church is big here too holy mother of somebody in the middle of town and they are dead in the middle of town and they screw with every single retailer that comes in. They want some little rule, not too late, not too this, no sidewalk. And therein lies the irony because growing up in Westchester myself, Larry, I don't know a single kid north of 287 that didn't smoke a ton of weed. So, you know, for this whole conservative movement that happens in the northern part of Westchester, it's, um, you know, it's a not in my backyard situation and not my kids, but it absolutely happens. And like the, for years and years, you know, that that's where I always thought, like, where you are and, like, by Bear Mountain and the other side of, you know, the, of the river, there was a lot of weed being grown there in the 80s and 90s. So it's, you know, that that was the zone that didn't happen in lower Westchester. It all happened right. upper Westchester. Yeah, for sure. The river was uh, always carried with it, you know, nice towns. But you're right about that. Yorktown Heights is right on the other side, and that's that's red, red, red. And yet, you know, and the kids there are also meth heads and stuff. So we go down that road. We, we all know what happens if, if you don't feed them weed. Exactly. Um, we don't have a whole lot of time, but I would hate to end this episode without just taking a couple of minutes. We don't, we don't have a lot of guests who come on this show that, that really have the, the, the level of dead gravitas that you bring. A lot of people can talk marijuana all day. And just share with us. One or two, you know, when, when, you're, when you're sitting there and you're looking back on all the years, all the shows, all the people you went to, you know, what are the what are the moments that 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 keep you laughing and alive? And I will just jump in and say that I'm really sorry that our other good Larry friend is not here with us today. He 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 was not able to join us. Uh, but when I talked to him, he said, "Make sure to remind you to tell the Flying Deadhead story." <laughs> yeah, we we were shoulder to shoulder for a lot of the stories I would tell if we had enough time. Uh, but I will tell the Flying Deadhead story. We were at Giant Stadium um, in the '90s and. Uh, let me see to describe it. We sort of uh, fill side, late day fill side, and like around the 50 yard line. So if you can picture, you're standing like looking to your left. And I know this is not a visual medium we're here with, but uh, so you look at your left because the stage is to the left down the end by the goal line. And um, out of both of the corner of our eyes, we, we see a flash of something that instantly didn't seem right, but you couldn't really figure out what it was because it was purely out of your periphery. And, um, then a second later, 
faces two rows ahead of us were like the face of horror. And it's a sad and shitty story, but the guy had jumped off the upper level um, thinking he was jumping onto the field, which was popular in Giant Stadium. I don't know if you guys were ever there, but it was just the right jump. About, about nine feet, just enough to break an ankle. Yeah, yeah. You, you could break an ankle, but you know, a lot of people could get in and not break an ankle. So it was, it was, it was a thing. Anyway, the guy was, was tripping very heavily, and he jumped and landed on some people. He was fine. I remember I, I was walking past, and I saw the medical tent uh, a little later, and I asked him what was up. So he was fine because his body went limp because he was tripping. So if you're going to jump off a stadium balcony, I guess, trip. Uh, but the person he hit was apparently injured, uh, like, permanently and, like, had, had screwed up stuff. I've heard stories about her over the years. So, but but the moment, uh, well, Larry and I, the Larry who's not here, can talk about that without just, you know, grieving for this poor woman is that it looked so freaky coming out of the, the little corner of our eye, like, what the fuck? It just, and it, it could only have been a body, but it's not going to be a body. Why would it be a body? So that's that's your flying deadhead. But um, I'll give you a little, some New York stuff. I've been thinking about this one thing a lot, knowing I was going to come on with you fellas. Um, maybe Oakland is the only other place that could say this. Our, um, I know Larry's a huge sports fan. We've gone through that a lot in the many years we've known each other. I don't know if anybody else here is, but... Our sports arenas are our dead arenas, and that's not the case most places around the place. So, you know, whether it was Bush Stadium, if the dead ever played in St. Louis or even Wrigley Field, they didn't play there and they didn't play the, the Chicago Stadium much, if ever. I don't remember any. Um, you know, so we grew up with the Garden as and yes, you're right about New Yorkers. We think it, we're the epicenter of everything. But the Garden really is. It, it's, you know, it's not the world's most famous arena for nothing. It is. And we grew up with the Garden as the place the dead played more than anybody else and more than they played anywhere else. And our beloved Knicks. I'm not a Rangers fan, but, you know, our, the Knicks played there. And every other concert. You know, so we sort of lived with these arenas that were very grateful dead-centric. Nassau and MSG are some pretty serious stuff in the whole dead canon. And that's where we saw that Julius Irving and, uh, and you know, the Islanders and, and Willis Reed when I was a kid. So that's a neat thing about New York. And, and there's a tiny cannabis element to that, which is that living in the suburbs, we took the train because the train lands under Madison Square Garden. And it was the smoking days where smoking cars. So it's so cool that in those days when we were little kids, you can smoke whatever you want on the train. And uh, you probably all remember this, the freaky people who would bring like a 10-foot bong on to, and try to sneak it in the garden. So that would be on the on the railroad. And um, then smoking went away completely, right? And now here we are, it's back, and uh, it'll be hey, curious. Hey, Larry, I have, I have curiosity. And by the way, I'm going to do a quick rapid fire with you here in a second. But for me, like when I took Metro North, I went to, uh, I went to Grand Central. I didn't go to Penn. Right. So I had to walk those last 15 blocks. From Croton, you actually went to Penn? No, I didn't grow up in Croton. I grew up on Long Island. Ah, there we go. So you went to Penn. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a huge bonus, man. So I had like walking from MSG to Grand Central when you were you know all spun out after a show was a uh, was, was a rough walk. Any walk after a show from the Garden, unless you, you know, it might work out well, but it never looks good at the beginning. I lived in Tribeca for many years, which was a great walk if it was a cool night and you felt like walking. But man, it sucked if you couldn't get a cab. So let me give you some rapid fires. Were you at the uh, MSG show for the Saint Stephen in '83? Was, Were you at, um, how many nights did you catch the nine-night run plus the extra night in 1988 with the Rainforest Benefit? Not all of them. Not the Rainforest Benefit. Probably six or seven. All right. um, I was just falling back into it. I kind of took a few years off um, when I was up in, in Albany. I mean, I would go to upstate New York shows because they were there, but I wasn't hitting every show I could like I did when I was young and like I did from about 87 or 88 on. Did you get 9-18-87 with the Morning Dew? 
Yes, yes, I did. Nice. Did you get um, 10, 20, uh, 10, 14, 94 with the Scarlet Fire? Yes, I did. Nice. And also, and, and also, you know, you talk about those years, Albany was usually better than Nassau. Yeah. And I went to college in Albany, so that was a reunion for all our college buddies. Building the Nick was the greatest thing if you lived in upstate New York. And Did you catch the first three Knicks shows in 90? I did. You know, we missed the first night. Um, I don't know whether we just couldn't get up there or couldn't have been tickets. So I guess we couldn't get up there. We showed up for that Saturday, which was also a Scarlet Fire. And then the Sunday was kind of a dopey, weird show, but it was on the radio. Yeah, it was the Built to Last Victim Shine Rider Night. Was that the Sunday that was on the radio? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the third night, yeah, 326.90. It was weird. It wasn't, it wasn't the best one of the run, but it was uh, But it was fun. It was also, I think, Dupree's Diamond Blues, if I'm not incorrect. It was the last Dupree's. Oh, well, there we go. They never, they never played it again after that. Yeah, it was actually the last built to last as well. I didn't realize that. Wow. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, other quick ones on this. Um, Giant Stadium. Did you catch 1989 when it was the uh, the lightning storm and uh, the lightning hit the, uh, the the stadium right as they said balls of lightning roll along and music never stopped? No. And, and I, was that a legend? Who knows? But, but no, I wasn't at 89 uh, Giants, but I was at the uh, Eyes of the World opener after that cleared the floor thunderstorm yep. a couple of years later. I think that was by 91. So at uh, Giant Stadium, how was the sound back in those days? Uh, straight up, very good. The, yeah. the floor was wonderful, and uh, to this day, any football stadium I'm forced to be in, um, I'll, or baseball now, they're doing that. I like it like behind the other goal line all the way back, and I'd spent a lot of time up there at Giant Stadium shows. If I didn't, In fact, where Larry and I were for the uh, Flying Deadhead was a very unusual place to be because it didn't sound that great on the sides. But um, the delay towers worked. The um, the visuals from all the way back because the stage was so big and you know it's not like the dead was running around and doing a ACDC act on stage so you don't have to be close um, but the sound was great there uh, to, to my recollection um, yeah you know, floor sounded great and then my last one for you is you catch uh, three twenty nine ninety at um, at Nassau Coliseum for Brantford oh sure and and nine ten ninety one with Brantford at MSG. Oh. Oh sure, and we, we knew we knew he was there for that one. We we had great seats that night, and we saw the microphone. It was kind of in room, and he was going to be there. Um, but uh, I, I want to tell a story about a different saxophonist. Since you brought up Brantford, um, my friend Eric told me you must tell this story. Um, I said, you know, I'm doing this this Grateful Dead and cannabis thing, and Eric has shared both with me quite a bit over the years, including I, he was with you and me, Larry, at uh, fairly well. But anyway. Um, Coming back to how many shows we got here, and we did. I mean, think about it. You're, you're naming nine show runs, plus the spring, plus the summer in the stadium, plus Philly is an hour away. So, you know, there were so many shows. And um, in 1993, Jerry does three shows um, in arenas in, I think, October, November. And I really had no particular intention to go to all of them because Jerry and arenas, you West Coast guys really got the, got the break with Jerry and theaters and – you know, I wasn't necessarily going to see all three shows. Uh, they were in three different places. So the Garden one, um, my girlfriend at the time had tickets to see Modern Dance at the Joyce Theater. And my friend Eric and all my other friends were like, you are missing. And they had great seats, by the way. We just happened to have the box at the Garden that you wanted was number 75. And we had 75 that night. And uh, <laughs> and, and they're like, you, 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 are, you are so with How are you going to see Modern Dance, of all things, at the Joyce Theater? And I said, fuck it, man, I'm going to go. I'm seeing him at NASA, or Meadowlands, I don't remember. And uh, that's the day. And he calls me afterwards. Cell phones were new, but we had them. And he goes, I said, so, you know, how was it? He's like, yeah, who's your favorite saxophonist? I'm like, I don't know. Ornette Coleman, David Murray. He goes, yeah, David Murray was there for the entire show. And and that was one of the 
I think we all got over the holy crap, we missed something part of being a deadhead. If you missed it, you missed it. Everything was great. It sucked, but it was okay. That one was hard to get over. I, I saw David play with the Grateful Dead. I didn't see him play with Jerry, but I saw him play with the Dead. And it's really avant-garde. It's totally different than uh, than what you expect to hear, like the melodic tones you get out of Ornette and get out Absolutely. of uh, Brantford. But it's just you know, much um, coarser in the way he was playing. So the nice thing about that show over there is I knew people who were friends with David, and I uh, got myself introduced to him about the Grateful Dead. And very soon after that, he was having a 40th birthday party. I got invited to meet the guy. We've been friends ever since. He got me the dats that Healy gave him. From that show, so uh, in, in those early days, you know, the one who circulated the dats was kind of cool. I think I got those out there pretty early on, and um, and then he played the Garden, which was real good in '94, and with the Dead, and I came out to Oakland for that either Mardi Gras or Chinese New Year's, that, uh, where he opened with his electric group and then uh, played with them, and it was real different. Hey, we shouldn't uh, end the show without acknowledging uh, Robert Zimmerman had a birthday, 80 years old this week. That's a garden show. Uh, Robert Zimmerman for the encore. Couldn't hear him, but he was up there anyways. That was kind of cool. <laughs> so, yep, Bob Dylan turns 80. Who would have thought? They, they were talking about that on the, uh, on the uh, what's the Sunday show on uh, Sirius XM, their, their show, the... Gary. Gary Lambert. Thank you. Right. And, and they, were, they were spending a few minutes talking about Bob... Uh, Dylan turning 80 years old and the first time they saw him and he's going to sound worse than ever now I love Bob Dylan I love his songs um, but boy some of the recent shows when he was in his mid to late 70s he really you couldn't understand a word he was saying that's so that's a different show I, I, I uh, let's do it let's let's debate that off air <laughs> right, exactly did I go a lot of places well you know, Larry, here's what the problem is. The problem is that we're just about to run out of time, but obviously we could be sitting here talking and sharing stories with you for another few hours. So um, as much as we would love to keep doing it, uh, we do have to keep the listeners happy and moving along as well. Well, thanks, guys. This was all kinds of fun. I appreciate it. This was great. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. It's, it's great. We really appreciate you doing it. It's great to have you here, and we will bring you back when we finally get Larry Vinoker available and we can bring him back. And then, although I would never do it, Rob, you can ask him the same question because when you get to the 83 St. Stephen, he'll cringe, but that's just the way it is. You know, the, the one time he and I were supposed to go to a show together and he didn't go, they played St. Stephen. What are you going to do? It happens. 79 Nassau, dark star in my neighborhood. Rode my bike. You're right. There you go. Even better. But so we will be happy to bring you back at some point with Larry and maybe even get the Larry, Larry and Larry show in and uh, and have some fun with that. Uh, Jim, have a good week. Always nice to check in with you. Uh, some good live music coming up. We have to stay on top of that because I'm sure we'll be coming out to Colorado and Wrigley Field's just going to be sitting there in September. So people who have a hankering to come to Chicago for a few days will be more than happy to have you. Very good. Looking forward to uh, getting up to Red Rocks and uh, seeing Mr. Weir next week. Oh, that's right. That's right. That'll be fantastic. That'll be very exciting. Good for you. That'll be fun to see. And Rob, always a pleasure. Hope things are going well for you out in California. And uh, we will look forward to checking in with you again next week. Yeah, sounds good, Larry. Uh, thanks, Jim. And uh, Larry Rader, thanks for coming on. And uh, I forgot to ask you about 101689, but I'm, I'm sure you saw that at, uh, at Brendan Byrne, another monster. And I'd be re I'd be remiss not to say uh, it's 526 uh, that we're taping this today. So if uh, those of you who haven't listened to 52695, uh, one of the absolute titanic Stella Blues towards the end of the Grateful Dead's career. So if we're going to say this day in Grateful Dead history, uh, instead of listening to a Europe 72 or something from the, uh, the 77 run, throw on 52695 just to see how good a Stella could be at the end. Uh, until next week, guys. 
And I will say that uh, you, you made a good point there, Rob. We've been doing a lot of talking about Europe 72. However, I must say that tonight is, in fact, the anniversary of the last show of Europe 72 from the Lyceum in London. Uh, I've been listening to it uh, for the last two months every night, uh, justifying to my wife all the money I spent when I bought the box set. And uh, it's just been wonderful. I'm sorry to see it go, uh, but I might take a little bit of time on my ride home tonight to uh, to listen to that Stella Blue and get myself ready for the uh, final uh, Europe 72 show. Uh, for everybody else, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will look forward to having you back next week. Take care, be safe, and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, it's Justin Benton, host of the Miracle Plant Podcast, where we discuss this miracle plant that goes by so many names and how it's helping people in so many extraordinary ways. So if you love this plant and you want to hear a story that tugs on those heartstrings and learn more about this plant, then head on over to the Miracle Plant Podcast. You'll be glad you did.